Hello, everybody. I'm here with Pastor Jeff Dival. Um, Pastor Jeff is the author of this book. It's called Christ Before Creeds. It came out um, pretty recently, I think, maybe just a couple months ago, something like that. Um, and I would say that it, it to summarize, it's about your own faith journey from a, a Trinitarian to a non-Trinitarian understanding of God and Jesus and the Bible. Um, but it is a very accessible book, I would say. I think you did a really good job of balancing being substantive, but also being available to a wide audience. Um, sometimes uh, Unitarians can get enjoy getting deep down in the weeds, uh, perhaps a little bit overindulgently so, and I think that you did a good job of, of keeping a, an audience in mind. So I would I would really recommend your book kind of as like the best book if I were giving it to just sort of an engaged Christian, but not necessarily someone who has been to seminary or has a PhD, but is curious on the topic and addresses questions with a level of seriousness, seriousness and depth, which is appropriate, but not uh, so deep that it loses people. I think you really struck that balance quite well. Well, yeah, thank you, Sam. That's exactly the audience that I wrote for. And uh, that was exactly the kind of tone in the book uh, that I sought to, you know, sort of have. And it was written for just basically, you know, people uh, who are churchgoers, but they've not done any academic uh, or theological studies, um, you know, so I'm not trying to assume too much or trying to get too technical. Uh, and yet still, you know, address the subject in a way that's that's going to be um, helpful and, and instructive. Yeah. yeah, and it's certainly not boring either. Uh, I, I enjoyed reading it. It's a it's a pretty quick, uh, easy page turner. And um, I think that you address kind of the, the different areas, both sort of scriptural concerns, historical concerns, kind of, I, I guess you could say spiritual kind of and personal devotional concerns. And then kind of like, what does this mean for the church and, and the life of believers and stuff like that? I think you hit kind of all of those notes and you do it in a very kind of peaceful and amenable way that I think anyone could find inviting and interesting and engaging. Yeah, well, thanks again, Sam. That, uh, that certainly fulfills what, you know, I was hoping to achieve. So that's mm -hmm. great. Hmm. Um, so kind of with, with that in introduction uh, out there, um, could could you tell me a little bit more about your your faith background and and sort of what was um, your Christian life growing up and how did you get to be where you are? Sure. Um, so Sam, I grew up in the Churches of Christ in Australia, um, which I don't think actually aligns exactly with any of the iterations that there may be in in the states, but mm -hmm. it, it's a um, you know conservative evangelical church that had a very basic, simple approach to the Christian faith. Uh, basically, let's get back to simple, uncluttered Christianity. Let's just take the Bible as our guide um, and let's uh, do away with all of the, the human uh, traditions and overlays that can so easily, you know, sort of crowd that out. And uh, let's just get back to the Bible. Let's get back to the simplicity of what the Christian faith is all about, to a very enthusiastic, um, you know, devotion to Jesus. 
Yeah. Um, so that, that was that was yeah. So the yeah the churches of Christ are it, it's a very interesting history. They, I I live in Illinois and there there's a decent amount of churches of Christ in Illinois, sort of like. I, it's like in the 1820s and 1830s, I think, right, that that sort of movement takes off. And mm -hmm. a lot of them were from sort of the eastern United States and moved to the frontier. And Illinois mm -hmm. was the frontier at that point in time. Uh, and yeah. so there, in central Illinois, there's actually a lot of, of Church of Christ influence there because that it was sort of a, I don't know, a congregating spot. And there are some towns that were even founded by Church of Christ, sort of either missionaries or pioneers or, you know, some combination of, of those two things. And, and I think sometimes, I, I think it's a little bit misunderstood because part of their purpose for Back to Basics was for unifying, right? They weren't trying to create necessarily new church. They were trying yes. to find a common denominator that could help unify all of these denominations that have been going in all these different directions. Yeah, absolutely. So it did have that very real intention that, you know, when we did get back to just the simple basics, that that would be a platform upon which we could um, appeal to Christians, you know, across the whole spectrum um, so that, you know, we could unify on the basics. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you grew up in Churches of Christ in Australia. How did you decide to yes. become a pastor? Okay, so, um, yeah, interesting question. I, I, I uh, grew up in a church where the minister was very keen to, to get uh, what he saw as, you know, up-and-coming, aspiring young men into ministry. And um, I, at the time, was planning to uh, follow my uncle's footsteps and become an architect and uh, he said to me one day, he said, well, you know, you, sure, you can become an architect and you can build, you know, bridges or buildings that might last, you know, maybe 50, 100 years or whatever. But uh, wouldn't it be better to be building something that lasts for eternity, you know, to be building the kingdom of God? And, and that really appealed to me. And, and I just said, yep, sounds great. I'll, I'll go into ministry. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's, a, that's a really cool story. So you... So you became a pastor um, of a church in the Sydney area. So how did you first come across, I guess, uh, a non-Trinitarian understanding of the Bible? Um, yeah, well, eventually I, I, I came into uh, a church in Sydney. Uh, interesting because, um, I mean, I had grown up and particularly in, in college, I'd only ever sort of um, been taught Trinitarian theology. Mm -hmm. um, so I had no other understanding really than a Trinitarian sort of, you know, theological uh, appreciation of who God is and who Jesus is. Um, I just accepted that was the biblical standard. And uh, it's interesting, you know, things that come to mind. I remember early on, I had, uh, you know, a, a strong Christian say to me in my youth, you know, well, Jesus was human and he was divine you know, what percentage do you think he was of each? Do you think he was 50-50 or 80-20 or, and I had no idea. And he said, well, you know, the truth is he was 100% human and 100% divine. And, um, you know, at the time I didn't think, you know, that doesn't make sense or, well, how does that work? Because he was an authority figure, I just said, yeah, okay. Um, in fact, I even thought that was quite profound at the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, looking back on it, you know, I see it very differently. But it's interesting, you know, you just grow up, you're taught things and you accept them. Uh, and that was the case for me. I, I didn't have any other understanding than a Trinitarian one. 
Uh, and then uh, I guess the crunch came for me one day. Um, and this is when I was maybe about 48. Um, my brother came to me and he had also been a, a minister in Churches of Christ uh, and said, I need to confess that I'm no longer a Trinitarian. Uh, well, that was out of, you know, out of the blue. I just had no understanding about wow. that. So it was just a total shock for me at the time. And uh, I guess that sort of fight or flight kind of response kicks in. So, you know, mine was initially a very much a fight one. And so, you know, I was... <laughs> Especially with your brother. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, as you can imagine, that, uh, that brought some very uh, robust, uh, you know, candid conversations. And I trotted out all of my reasons and all of the, you know, verses that I used to back up my belief in the Trinity and in Jesus as being God. Uh, and so we had some very robust discussions. Um, and in the midst of that, um, you know, he, he was able to kind of give me some information I'd never heard, um, never been exposed to. And it made me realize that, you know, it's not as simple as I once thought it was. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it began questioning for me. Yeah. Um, and, and looking back on it, um, Brian McLaren has like four stages of faith. I don't know whether you're yeah, familiar with that. Yeah, he's sort of a, an emergent church kind of guy, right? Brian yeah, McLaren? yeah, 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 he is. And, and maybe, you know, would have some, you know, maybe not as accepted by some in, <laughs> yeah. in even, but I thought his concept was good. And, and I could actually looking back see that actually I followed this path. So he starts off, he's saying the first stage is simplicity where you simply accept what's being, you know, taught mm -hmm. and told to you by authority figures. And then he said, there's complexity where you realize that, you know, life and faith isn't as simple as I once thought, you know, and, and I, there was that complexity. I, I realized, Hey, wait a minute, this issue <clears throat> isn't as simple as I thought. There's actually a lot of information here that I had never been privy to. Um, and then he said, the third stage is perplexity where you know it, it begins to, to to create real doubt mm -hmm. and, and, and that was happening um not just in terms of this doctrine but i was thinking well you know if if i've got it wrong if i've had it wrong about what i've believed about jesus and what i've been preaching for years if this isn't what the bible teaches you know and i was so sure of this uh, it really began to rattle me. It really began to say, well, what can I really be sure of? So I yeah. did go through a bit of a, a, bit of a crisis uh, in that whole process. But then, of course, it took quite a long time. It took maybe a decade of me just every now and then reading different books, rethinking different issues uh, to finally get to a place uh, of what he calls harmony, where you, you know, become settled in what you actually do believe. Mm -hmm. And there's that whole process of deconstruction and then reconstruction. And, and I went through all of that uh, over a period of maybe 10 to 12 years. Mm -hmm. And, and so it, it's one thing to go through that as a lay person. It's, it's another thing to go through that as a, a pastor or minister. What, what was, how did that interact with your story? Um, yes. Well, <laughs> very, uh, very interesting. So 
when I was just in the initial stages of, you know, starting to question things, uh, for example, at our local fraternal, which is the local gathering of, of ministers in churches, and, and I, I uh, actually started that and I facilitated that. And so we had a practice where each time we got together, one of the, one of the clergy, one of the, the members of the fraternal would lead in devotions. And um, so the Anglican pastor was leading in devotions and he just made the comment. So this is a, a multi or an interdenominational uh, fraternal. Yeah, interdenominational, mm -hmm. local fraternal. That's um, and, and he, in his devotion, just made a comment, you know, Jesus had to be God to die for our sin. And of course, at one stage, I would have just accepted that. But because I was questioning, I said, I said, you know, well, where does it actually say that in the Bible? Where does the Bible actually teach that? Um, it was probably the wrong forum to ask that question. <laughs> um, but it, I mean, there was a confidentiality, um, you know, I guess, you know, understanding within the fraternal, but I met with that Anglican minister and he was upset about, you know, what I was thinking and the questions I was asking. So he informed the leader of my denomination that I was heretical. Mm -hmm. And um, had you formally changed your mind on this topic yet? Or no, were you more in the questioning phase? Absolutely. Very early in the questioning phase, you know, yeah. and, and so I was far from having come to any settled position, but, um, but then the word got out and, and he spread the word in, in the, you know, elsewhere that I had sort of, you know, become unorthodox and, mm -hmm. and, and a heretic. Um, our church got blacklisted within, you know, wow. the local area and things like that, even though my own church was totally unaware of this journey that I was on. And I wasn't sharing it generally. I wasn't out there on any crusade. I, it was a very private journey yeah. that I was on. Mm -hmm. uh, the elders knew that I was on this journey. Uh, I told a few of the staff that we brought on. So they were aware and they were not coming on under false pretenses, but I was you know, a long way from coming to any, any conclusion. Um, but yeah, it did, it did uh, create some, some um, ramifications to the point where finally um, the staff or a few of the staff initiated some, some a meeting with the denominational leaders uh, to sit down and talk with me and our, our leaders about, what we were going to do about this issue of my unorthodox views. Mm -hmm. um, now we had this, this meeting and I was, yeah, I guess I was so, um, what's, was it, you know, I, I was so sort of believing that churches of Christ, what we stood for was such that we could accommodate this. Yeah. But um, you know, because I thought, okay, well, you know, this is my journey. Um, and I saw it as a non-essential. Some people right. might see it, but I thought, okay, this is not an essential. And Churches of Christ had this, this saying, in essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, in all things, love. Right. That's, a, that, that's sort of a well-known phrase now, but it comes from the Churches of Christ movement. I, 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 well, I think, I think we borrowed it from elsewhere. Oh, okay. We kind of adopted <laughs> it as, a, as, as, a, as kind of like a, a core value, you know? Right. And yeah. so when we met with the with the leaders of, of our of our network of churches, um, I thought that the issue would be 
is this biblical or not? Because that's the touchstone always for churches of Christ. You know, uh, let's get back to the Bible uh, and what the Bible says, not you know what other mm-hmm. people might believe. So, but the but the issue wasn't is this what the Bible teaches? And I thought, well, if it's not that, it'll be is this essential or not? But the it wasn't even that wasn't the issue. So it wasn't is this scriptural or is this essential or not? The issue was this has the potential to cause reputational damage yeah. to our to our churches. Right. Therefore- if you're getting blacklisted or badmouthed or even cast a suspicion upon by other churches in the area, that that will affect other things too. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And and as I said, look, this is this was my own journey. I, I wasn't out there preaching it or or trying to you know gather people around. Um, most people in our church wouldn't have even been aware of it. Right. And Uh, it sounds like you weren't even particularly clear on your alternative yet, but it was a subject that was under investigation by you. So even the idea that the Trinity was somehow being questioned or or thought about or, or analyzed was the problem. Not that you were, you know, hammering from the pulpit, a clear, you know, denouncement of, of the doctrine or something. Yeah, um, I did have a couple of meetings prior to, and I was in that state. But by the time we had this this uh, meeting with our church leaders and the leaders of our, our movement, at that stage, I had actually come to, I guess, that place of harmony, that place where I was in my settled uh, mm. understanding of what the Bible taught. Uh, but it was interesting that you say that, Sam, because the um, the principal of our Bible college said to me, he said, well, why don't you just say that you're still on the journey? If you could just say you're still on the journey, then, then that will be okay. And I said, well, I could say that, but in all honesty and with integrity, yeah, I, I, I can no longer say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it became clear um, that this was going to create a real issue for the leaders in our church. And so because I could see the that I was the problem here, um, I decided to step down from the from leading that church, which I had actually planted 19 years ago, and as a church plant had grown up with and, you know, uh, t- to quite a significant church. Yeah, well, that must have been very, I don't know, difficult, heartbreaking, all of those sorts of things I, I can only imagine. Mm, absolutely, yeah, yeah, I mean, um, not only did I lose, um, I guess, you know, my church and my vision and my ministry, but also, um, you know, any other opportunity to really take on a, right. a church in our denomination. Yeah. 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 And, and your spiritual community and, and all of those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So many deep, deep relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, the, the, this is a pattern that I've, I've seen sometimes. I, I've, it feels unfortunate. I don't know what. It, it sometimes seems like among Trinitarians who come to a non-Trinitarian understanding kind of through good faith investigation of the scriptures, that it takes a very honest and uh, good person, I would say, to do that. And then sometimes it seems like that process, then the when churches either come to reject that person, excommunicate them, or kind of what happened to you, that it's this really unfortunate thing where we're we're so compelled to do the right thing that sometimes <laughs> it seems like 
man, I wish we would stick to our guns and fight a little bit, but then, you know, that's not necessarily maybe what Jesus would do. And it, it's only <laughs> people who really are willing to stick to their guns about following Jesus that will voluntarily go through this sort of process. So it seems like this pattern where the, the good people do it, and sometimes the not quite as scrupulous people are left on the other side. And that that's a that's a frustrating thing that I, I don't I don't know what the answer to that is or exactly what point I'm trying to make, but I've seen that happen a lot of times. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the um, you know, as I said, the, the the president of the Bible College was actually offering me an olive branch and just yeah. saying, hey, look, you know, if you'll play play along with us, you know, we'll, tip, we'll play tip with your hat just a, a little bit and, and yeah. I can work with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you yeah. know, they were offering me a way to, in a sense, maybe, you know, compromise or just, just you know, be diplomatic and, and, and we can work this out in, a, in another way. Um, I guess it was just a question of my integrity, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and what I could honestly say and, and do to live with myself. And so, yeah, yeah. So yeah. It, it was that, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I grew up, in a biblical Unitarian church. We actually never used that phrase of ourselves. I actually don't think I knew the word biblical Unitarian until like four or five years ago. And someone said, I'm like, what is that? And so, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah that's right. I know what that means. Okay. Yeah, because we just always said, you know, we didn't believe in the Trinity or we didn't believe Jesus was God and we didn't have a name for our alternative. And but I but I've kind of rubbed elbows with a lot of Trinitarians, and I actually even currently go to a Trinitarian church and have been involved with uh, evangelical ministries that are of, of Trinitarian denominations or parachurches or you know etc. And mm. so, you know, sometimes I've gotten my, you know, gotten in trouble for, for those sorts of things. But one thing I, I don't, I don't know what it's like to actually be a Trinitarian, because I, I actually never, I never have, I, I have a pretty good imagination, I think, for what people are saying. And I totally know what you were talking about when your brother first um, explained his change of mind to you, that you felt I don't know, shell-shocked or this uh, fight-or-flight response. I, I've definitely been in your brother's position on that um, situation <laughs> numerous times. But yes. I, I guess um, one thing that, that I want to ask you is, is, is what is sort of the, the emotional draw, the spiritual connection and that, that Trinitarianism has to offer that, that kind of gives this response when, when it's encountered with an alternative idea? Um, well, I think, I think most Trinitarians, um, you know, just believe that, that, um, you know, what they've been taught is the truth. Um, and you just come up accepting that mm -hmm. you, you don't even, you're not even aware there's any other way to see it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so you just brought up in that paradigm and, and you give it, it's interesting. I was, I was in, um, a class, uh, about this time last year. And uh, it was a, a class that was taught um, by Churches of Christ uh, on the Trinity. And so this three-day intensive was all about the Trinity. And, and everyone in the class was Trinitarian uh, theological students except myself. And, and, and the, um, the lecturer, you know, just was saying things like, well, we know that the early Christians... Um, were persecuted in the first century, as we see in the book of Acts. And, you know, it was because 
they believed that Jesus was God, that they were receiving this persecution. Now, everyone just sat there and accepted that. And I was there, the only one pushing back and saying, hey, wait a minute, do you have any historical evidence to back up, you know, your contention that this persecution of the, of the uh, early believers, you know, was because of their belief in Jesus as God? I said, Paul says in Galatians that the persecution was because of, you know, how they saw or how they were seen to be in terms of the law. So, you know, a lot of things are just said and accepted unquestioningly. And uh, there's not even any awareness that there's any other way of seeing it. Or if there is another way of seeing it, a bit like, you know, Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons, or it's, it's a very cultish. Yeah, sort it's of, easily uh, discredited. And in fact, it's exactly. almost like the example of Jehovah's Witness and Mormons serves the purpose of showing that, look, some people don't believe it, but look, you know, they're like that, right? So, yes, yeah, yes, you know, exactly. to, yeah. to reinforce the, the kind of the exception, they're the exceptions that prove the rule, I guess, is sort of uh, kind of the, the purpose that they sometimes hold in, in popular imagination. Yeah. But I, I think that sometimes Trinitarians feel like it would be sort of like taking their Jesus away or something like yeah. that. Um, yes. if they were if they were to suddenly believe something different and and I think you said something sort of similar to that in your book could you talk a little bit more about that yeah well I think um, you know once again to see it any other way is to kind of it, it's it's to question all of your um, authority structures you know that, that you've established but also it's to discredit the people you know who you've respected as you've grown up and all those kind of things but there is also a very strong sense and I felt it very much as well that if you don't see Jesus as God then you're diminishing him mm -hmm. you know that you're mm -hmm. taking away from who he is and and there's that strong sense of that as well and it would and be I had disrespectful that... or even disloyal or something yeah, it's to diminish him. You know, that's how I saw it. When my brother started to talk, you know, when he said, well, Jesus is the son, is, is the son of God, but he's not God the son. I, I, I felt sick inside. I thought he was, you know, taking my Jesus and, 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 and bringing him down, you know, and, and I think that's a strong sense of it all too. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And that, that almost seems part of it, like non-Trinitarians in my experience often, treat Trinitarians with uh, more understanding than vice versa. And mm. I think that that non-Trinitarians, like, it's like, okay, we understand what you Trinitarians are saying. And maybe there's even like a good intention behind it of making sure that Jesus is given all the sort of glory and honor and respect that would be due to him, but you're like going too far, right? Mm. Where, mm. And, and that doesn't seem perhaps as drastic of a mistake as not going far enough. And that, yes. that is part of the asymmetry of, of how the two groups can sometimes see and treat each other. Yeah, no, I think that's a good comment. Um, yeah, Sam, I think that's often the case, absolutely. Mm. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then a, a common question or a common complaint that comes up nearly right away is, and you sort of mentioned this in, in your, when you were in the, the meeting with the, the other um, pastors is, well, wouldn't Jesus need to be God to do X? And oftentimes it's, you know, to die for our sins, but, you know, it could also, sometimes it's to do miracles or to, you know, uh, to be our Lord and Savior, or, you know, you fill in the blank, but 
but that Jesus needs to be God in order for all of these other important things to also be true, right? Yes. Like, and there, I kind of understand the intuition behind that, but I guess I, I've never thought that from the inside. So, so, so what's, what's that like? And how is it like for you to kind of, I, I guess, see beyond that sort of paradigm? Well, what was really helpful for me, Sam, was um, when my brother started to talk to me and, and I began to read about the whole Jewish understanding of agency. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had never even come across that. Um, and I think that's the problem is that oftentimes we or, or, or Christians approach the Bible with, um, you know, their predetermined assumptions um, so they bring a Trinitarian assumption to the Bible that Jesus is God, and therefore they read that back into the scriptures. Um, and that's very easy to do. But when you begin to understand the Jewish mindset mm-hmm. in things like agency, uh, particularly, and, and you know, in, in other things, you, you begin to get a different perspective, um, you know, that, um, yeah, that, that Jesus is... is um, you know, the divinely appointed authorized agent of God who comes in a sense as God, but not himself God. So he represents and, 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 and is the agent of God uh, without himself being God, you know, and it's just sort of coming to terms with some of those things I think uh, is helpful. So having a Jewish understanding um, and trying to bring that, and that's what I try to do in the book. I try to sort of say, Hey, look, you know, rather than a Greek philosophical perspective um, that we tend to naturally bring, let's let's get back to how the original authors uh, would have seen, you know, things and understood things, um, and come from their worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that makes sense, and I think that that idea of agency, you know, I, that it would. That can get past that idea that, well, Jesus needs to be God in order for what he accomplishes to work or matter or yes. to count or something like that. And, yeah. you know, an example I often bring up is it's like, well, so who brought the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt? Did God bring the Hebrews out of slavery or did Moses? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, then, and then that sort of starts to get under that idea. Well, then, okay, so yeah. who you know, who is saving us from our sins, God or, or Jesus, right? And then, yes, yes. And then that, that kind of, that distinction and connection then starts to, to click in that kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you start reading the Gospels, you know, you realize that Jesus was saying exactly that, you know, he basically says, you know, look, you know, the words that I, I, I bring, the, the works that I do, they're not mine, you know, mm-hmm. they're my father. Uh, working in me and through me and and um, you know Peter on the day of Pentecost you know that Jesus was a man you know a man you know attested by God Mm -hmm. through you know what he did and when you start to read it from that different understanding perspective it all just starts to make a lot more sense and and read a lot more uh, cogently and coherently yeah yeah and and naturally so we, yeah. we, we, we talked a little bit about sort of kind of, I guess, the, the spiritual intuitions and, and feelings that can help make Trinitarianism feel attractive or at least kind of hard to leave, you know, that, that sense that, that Jesus is just sort of God himself kind of is this connection between, you know, what Jesus did and, and why it would matter and sort of his spiritual level or a spiritual plane. 
But what are some, I think that, I think that biblical Unitarians need to be a little bit better at telling our story in a way that is not just sort of logical and coherent, which it is, and not just sort of um, is more faithful to the Bible, which it is, but is also sort of emotionally attractive and, and spiritually attractive and sort of commanding people's, I don't know, spiritual affections or however you would want to put that. Mm. Yeah, okay. So I think um, I think it is important that we, you know, have our understanding as to what we believe and why we believe it. But then also to be able to, um, I guess, indicate, um, I guess, um, just the amazing Jesus as a man, you know, yeah. that yeah. Um, that he was able to, you know, resist temptation, that he was able to put his faith in God. I mean, if he was, if he was already God, if he'd already, you know, been in heaven before his birth he he did you know as the bible says you know you don't need faith you know um faith is is where you don't have sight um you know so faith only really makes sense uh in a non-trinitarian understanding of jesus right and faith yeah you talk about the faith of jesus right Mm. and you know Mm. we we have faith in jesus too we're not saying that we shouldn't have faith in jesus you know i when i go to the doctor i have faith in my doctor that he'll treat me when i go to the dentist i have faith that they will take good care of my teeth and not try and scam me out of too much money um, you know, yeah. we, we, we have faith in people all the time. And I'm not saying that our, our faith in Jesus is at the same level as our faith in the dentist. It's obviously much bigger than that. But there is also yeah. the faith of Jesus that yes, that Jesus, yes. you know, he goes to the cross trusting in God, right, that God will uh, raise him from the dead, right, that yeah. that this yeah. is what God has asked him to do. And he he's trusting in God. He's not just God going through the motions, knowing perfectly well in his omniscience that everything's going to be well the whole time he Mm. he is a man like us that has to trust in god and that Mm. when we think about that then we we can realize that jesus isn't just someone to have faith in but it's someone who we emulate the faith of and if jesus just is god it seems to break that link and i think that that's really one of the important ideas that a non-trinitarian understanding of jesus has to offer Mm, absolutely yeah so his faith his hope uh all those kind of things make a whole lot more sense um you know his his trust in god his absolute reliance on god in every aspect uh of his life um just uh you know his resisting temptation i mean i i guess i had this fear that if i didn't have this trinitarian faith in in jesus if i saw him as um as a member of the human race, as a man, that that would somehow, you know, sort of weaken my admiration or love or devotion. It's actually increased it. It's actually strengthened it. I actually now appreciate Jesus more than I ever have. Um, So those fears I had that, you know, that it would affect my devotion and love for Jesus were totally unfounded, uh, really. Um, I've come to appreciate him more deeply and more wonderfully than I ever have. Yeah. Um, what, one thing that, that you talked about a little bit earlier is that a, a challenging thing that can happen is as someone moves from Trinitarianism to non-Trinitarianism, even if they sort of get this idea that we were just talking about that 
it, suddenly Jesus actually seems to come to life in a way instead of just being like like a Superman sort of avatar. You use the example of Superman in your book. Um, but there is this distrust that happens. Well, wait a minute. I How did I believe something so wrong? How was I taught something so wrong? Why didn't anybody tell me about this? And that I, I have seen some, not a ton, but some examples where people move from Trinitarianism to non-Trinitarianism. And this sort of, I don't know who I can trust anymore, either sends them into kind of a weird sort of lonely isolation is one thing that can happen, or they just continue to deconstruct and be like, well, maybe the whole religion was a hoax this whole time. And they go into either atheism or just sort of, you know, non-belief. Or mm. one third option that I've seen is to go to either Catholicism or Orthodoxy and be like, well, maybe this Protestantism thing, I'm just going to find the institution that I can trust and just fully trust them and not, mm. and maybe the problem is just me, right? And that I'm just going to fully, you know, go to one of those churches who tells me exactly what to believe and is a institution that has a very kind of you know, strict guideline on these sorts of things. I, I that mm. that I've seen all three of those sort of reactions to this because mm. um, it's a tough pill to swallow to to realize that that something that was held up as so important could be so wrong. And then how do I mm. rebuild a trust in a church or institutions or history or any of those sorts of things again? So so what mm. what was that process like for you? And and how have you sort of held on to some amount of, I don't know, <laughs> hope and positive feeling after swallowing a, a relatively hard medicine. Yeah, um, well put, Sam. And I think you're expressing there something of, you know, those stages of faith that people uh, after complexity often get to perplexity uh, where doubt and skepticism and those kind of things can easily creep in and it will produce either a response where it's it's all too hard so i'll just escape back to simplicity you know to, yeah, to something yeah. that's concrete uh or it can mean as you say that it just unravels and, and they just lose faith in you know in everything yeah. be it the christian be it the christian faith um or be it you know trinitarianism or non-trinitarianism so yeah so it's a matter of saying okay well maybe you know, maybe what I taught wasn't right, um, but that doesn't mean I have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, you know, is everything uh, wrong or is it just some things that need to be rethought and reworked? And I guess that was a, the thing. I was saying, okay, well, let's let's get back and and uh, see what is true here and what's what's solid, and then going from that basis to reconstruct. So rather than continue to deconstruct, you know, well, what what can we build out of what is solid um, and go from there? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that kind of building off that last question is that for, for non-Trinitarians, there's kind of two choices for us in terms of how to kind of uh, go to church and have community and fellowship and those sorts of things. And it's either to kind of go into, you know, Trinitarian churches with probably some level of acceptance, but also some level of restriction, right? Where it's like, okay, you can show up on Sunday, you can't become a member because you can't say the statement of faith. And if you're not a member, you can't vote, you can't do, I don't know, but you know, Sunday school, et cetera, but you can participate to some half measure, right? 
Um, mm. But at least I'm at least I'm getting something rather than nothing. Um, mm. And then who knows, maybe my presence over time will open up their mind to these sorts of questions. Also, that you know uh, that hope, that that's a hope that often isn't realized. And then the other option is to try and build our own, you know, new churches, um, new institutions, new fellowships, maybe home fellowships and stuff like that. But that's uh, you know, you're you, you're a church planner. You know how difficult it is to to build new things. So, what's sort mm. of your opinion on should we kind of should non Trinitarians kind of stay in Trinitarian land with some sort of hope of our example and witness bearing some fruit, or should we fo focus more on building our own churches and our own institutions where we can have full acceptance? Yeah, once again, good question, Sam. Um, I think my my response would be that it would be very much situationally determined. Um, I'd hate to have a, a rule that sort of is a blanket rule. Um, mm. I think it would be, you know, um, determined by the response or the culture of the church that you're involved in. Um, you know, you get churches that are very uh, accepting um, and others that are very, you know, strict. And, you know, I guess it's a matter of um, as, as you're involved in that church, um, is it something that that is helpful for you and is it helpful for the people uh, or do I have to compromise too much you know one way or am I causing too much angst you know so basically what are, are the are the benefits of my being here um, for myself and for this fellowship is, is that is that okay or not okay you know and it's it, it will depend a little bit just on on attitudes and and what the culture of the church is really um, you know sometimes to to keep in that situation will so grieve your spirit or so or cause so much angst in the people around you that it's not worth continuing uh you know in 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 that um i i'd, I'd still be saying a bit like paul you know used to go to the jewish synagogues and um you know, he would proclaim this new understanding of Jesus, which uh, and and of the gospel, which uh, met varying responses. There were churches like the Bereans, who, you know, were very honourable and 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 judged everything by the scriptures. And there were other situations that were much more antagonistic. Um, yeah, so I I'd, I'd probably gauge it, you know, uh, maybe situationally uh, but I can see there is some value in in um, non-trinitarians getting together maybe to produce um, you know situations or resources that would encourage people who otherwise are, are not going to be encouraged in their journey yeah. so I can see some advantage there yeah so so how how should what what would build what what advice would you give to non-trinitarians who are looking to build either a church or a fellowship or or some kind of institutions of their own as someone who who has planted churches um okay yeah so i guess for me it's it's certainly understanding what you believe and why you believe it but then for me as i try to say in the book uh, it's a matter of putting that in perspective um, because there are a lot of, you know, institutions, even political parties that are, are kind of one issue parties. And mm -hmm. they so obsess and fixate on that, that they lose perspective across the board. 
And so I'd say, okay, yes, you know, we need to understand what we believe, why we believe, but we need to keep that in perspective. Um, and from my background as a Church of Christ, you know, I see this as a non-essential. Uh, others, others don't, but as I read the scriptures, I think that, you know, whether a Christian believes uh, has a high Christology because they believe Jesus is God, or they have a high Christology because they believe, you know, that he is an exalted man. Um, either way, you know, he is Lord and they are putting their trust in him and what he's achieved on the cross. All those basics are still there, whatever. So you just need to kind of, I think, keep it in perspective. And I think you need to also see that, um, that they're our brothers and sisters, you know, they're not the enemy <laughs> and, no. and to kind of have an accepting attitude and then to have patience. I mean, um, I think it's just important. I, it took me about 10 or 12 years, that whole journey from what, from being committed Trinitarian to committed non-Trinitarian. Um, and it takes people oftentimes, even with the gospel, you're not going to kind of convert them in one one presentation you know you'll sow a seed here sow a seed there god's spirit will begin to work on those seeds it takes time you know and i think we just need to keep all of those things in mind um you know whatever we do as as non-trinitarians mm -hmm. and so uh, a question that that i'm kind of curious about is um we statements of faith are are often creeds or statements of faith are often one of the things that keeps us non-trinitarians excluded from trinitarian churches and institutions should non-trinitarian churches have their own statements of faith and creeds or is it creeds that are kind of the problem themselves yeah well I come, of course, from a non-creedal background, Churches yeah. of Christ, you know, no, no creed but Christ. And that's where the title of my book sort of, you know, sort of fits yeah. in. Um, so I'm very non-creedal. Um, not that I'm not that I'm saying statements of faith are necessarily wrong in themselves. Um, but when they become prescriptive, I think that's when it's wrong. Um, you know, it's OK if they're descriptive, saying, you mm. know, these these, you know, are things that we we believe in but when we get to cross the line and say well you have to believe these things um then when they become prescriptive not just descriptive so i'm happy for creeds if there's some sort of you know statement that says that this is what you know uh is generally or this is what other things that we hold and value together um you know so i'm happy about that and uh but i i would be a little resistant to creeds. I'd tend to be one more for like underlying principles or core values. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, Sam, there's a, there's a um, interesting thing. Do you know about bounded sets and centered sets? Yes, I, I've, he I've heard that, that description, that terminology before. I, I was once part of a group that claimed that it was a centered set until they found I was out of bounds, but... Uh... <laughs> So as part of me is a little skeptical when I hear that. I'm like, are you sure? Are you sure you actually believe that? Because I will put that to the test in my person. So part of me has a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth, but I have heard that before. So yeah, could you could you explain a little bit more about that distinction? Yeah, sure. So a bounded set, it'd be good if I had, if I had you know paper and pen, but a bounded set is is when you have a boundary. Um 
And basically, you define people as in or out, acceptable or unacceptable, uh, based on whether they fulfill the criteria that means that they're inside the boundary. So in Australia, we have, you know, think of a, a you know, a, a herd of goats or sheep or something. You can put a fence around and keep them in and say, okay, well, if they're in, if they're in there, they're in. If they're outside, they're out. And, and a lot of churches you know, like Anglicans have their 39 articles and, you know, these are the things you have to believe. And if you tick these boxes, then you're in the boundary. The other approach is in Australia, we have like huge, um, you know, sort of stations that are, that are just, you know, thousands of square kilometres or square miles. So you can't build fences, but you have watering holes. And so the, the cattle... Uh, are free to roam, but but they're you attracted. You don't have to worry come... about them going too far because there's a, a a magnet and a tractor that sort of keeps yeah the, that gives the group coherence without there needing to be a boundary. Exactly, that's right. Yeah, so so you define people not by a boundary, but where they are in relationship to the center, and whether they're what direction they're going. Are they going towards or away from, you know? And, and I think that's much more dynamic, much more relational. And, and, and for me, I like that understanding of, of the Christian faith that, you know, that Jesus is, you know, the center, that God is, you know, the one who, who, who draws us and relationally we are connected to him and therefore to each other. We don't need these strict boundaries to, uh, to keep people in place. Yeah. 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 I, I like that. I think that one of the things that uh, non-Trinitarians have either can, uh, changed their mind from Trinitarianism to non-Trinitarianism or people like me who have just butted up against too many boundaries, uh, that, that one thing that we learn is that those, those boundaries can often be very impersonal and sort of cold-hearted and not, they just don't have the feel of the spirit of God about them um, in the way that they get enforced or, you know, because I think we, we've probably both experienced people who are kind of zealous to enforce those boundaries in a way that doesn't seem very Christ-like or people who are part of an institution where they feel obligated to do something, even though they might not feel like it's the right thing to do. Like, I'm sure that there was a lot of people in your congregation or in your denomination that like liked Jeff, but like they felt this kind of weird external pressure either from, you know, history or tradition or their institution to do something. And it can feel very, it can feel very unchristlike and, and doesn't seem to be an example of the fruit of the spirit or the gospel in their life and whether they're doing it kind of voluntarily and zealously or not. Mm. And once again, it's getting back to what is Christianity all about? You know, I yeah. think, uh, it, you know, the religious approach is, you know, that you've got to tick these boxes and fulfill these requirements in order to, you know, conform and be acceptable. Um, whereas, you know, Jesus butted up against the, the religious leaders of his day because his approach was so different. You know, his was, uh, well, you, you worship God, you know, with your lips, you know, you've got the outward form, but your hearts are far from him. And uh, of course, their their response to Jesus, you know, reflected their, their their heart to God, and and their hearts were a long way from where they needed to be, even though they had all the, you know, all the rules and the regulations in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah, and and that the kind of creeds or you know long statements of faith or articles of faith can can become even though it seems like it's faith as opposed to works, right? You know, it's like oh that you know works is you know doing you know I I guess activities that check boxes, and now I have mm -hmm. faith over here and I'm checking boxes of faith, but it can become a weird sort of um, I don't know, propositional pharisaicalism or something like that in a way that mm. isn't capturing kind of the heart of faith itself either. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, no, nah, indeed. Um, so a lot more could be said about that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, I, I guess, do you, have, do you have any sort of uh, closing thoughts or, or, or things that, that concluding remarks um, that, that you want to, to say? Um, no, just uh, thanks very much, Sam. I appreciate, uh, you know, your endorsement. I, I, I've really enjoyed just this conversation and, and coming across people like you who, uh, you know, I think it's, and I try to do this in the book, that hold truth and grace together. Um, and as Paul says about controversial issues like this, he says, you know, uh, his issue was food sacrifice to idols. And of course, there were people who had different views around that. You know, he said, look, we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And uh, if it's just a matter of, you know, we've got to get the right doctrine here uh, without a heart of love for God and for others, then I think we've missed the boat. And, um, you know, just talking to you, I really appreciate not just, um, you know, what you believe, but I appreciate, you know, your attitude and your heart uh, in, in all you believe as well. Well, well, thank you, Jeff. I, I really appreciate that. And uh, I really enjoyed your book and, and I would heartily recommend it to, to anyone. Um, and, you know, it might even be a good idea for non-Trinitarians to keep it stocked in case they run into a situation where they need to give a, a good example of, of what they believe to, to someone who's asking questions or confused or, or, or what have you. So, uh, yeah. so buy the book and, and maybe more than one. You, you never know when <laughs> it might come in handy. Yeah, it was interesting on that one, Sam. I, I see it as really, you know, an introductory book that helps people helps people to get on the journey, helps them kind of, you know, start the journey of discovery. But it's interesting, I've had um, more people than I would have thought, even, um, you know, church pastors who've read the book, and from being, um, you know, fully Trinitarian, they've now come to a uh, position of non-trinitarian having just read that book you know i just thought it will mm -hmm. help people get on the journey but for some they they've been so convinced it's actually taken them all away so yeah mm. mm -hmm. yeah we we never know what 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 effect our, our work will have um and and ultimately it's in in god's hands and god often accomplishes more with our what, what can seem like our, our mediocre work than than we ever thought possible yeah for sure right. absolutely well, uh, well it's, been, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Sam. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate it.